Hey there, I'm Nick Terzo, and this is The Radical. My guest this week wears many hats, producer, songwriter, and master mandolin player. His involvement as a member of the band Lone Justice and his early work with the bands Toad the Wet Sprocket and Counting Crows helped establish his reputation. His new record, The Mood of the Country Now, displays all of his unique styles as a songwriter, artist, and producer. The multi-hyphenate Marvin Etzioni joins me this week to discuss his creativity over many decades. Coming up, my conversation with Marvin Etzioni. Hello, Marvin. Hello, Nick. Thank you for being here and doing this with me. I'm really excited. My pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Happy New Year to you. Same to you. So you've been kind of a busy guy this year, it looks like. It looks like you've had a couple of projects out this year. I spent months finishing up the album, What's the Mood of the Country Now? Really from a distance. You know, I can go to studios, so I'd send a couple of tracks to David Leach to overdub percussion and get a mix from another engineer. Finally, I sequenced the record. We put it out literally like a month and a half ago, and we've been getting some great reviews. That's awesome. So I listened to Love Letter to Democracy, and its influences are interesting to me because I think it could be a lot of people's records. Uh-huh. I think some of it could be a Bob Dylan record. Uh-huh. I think some of it could be if John Lennon had lived, <laughs> some of it could be that. So the songs are that well-written, the very much Thank you. Um, of the moment politically, I suppose. Um, Think Different is a great song on that, on that album. Mm-hmm. Bamboo is really unusual. That's like a throwback to some other era. Yeah. Tell me about that song. Who are the collaborators on this record? Let's talk about that a little bit. On the uh, album, What's the Mood of the Country Now?, I had the opportunity to work with an incredible soul singer. Her name is Cy Smith. You should definitely look her up. An amazing talent and just a blessed human being. She's just incredible to work with. So that particular track has Cy and also another friend of mine, Eastwood, who does gospel rap. We met about 20 years ago. Zach Baird is playing like a Moog synth. He's playing these horn lines that go with the guitar. And then we have the horns that are doubling, you know, the part. You know, he programmed the drum machine on it. And on Cover Your Bamboo, it took me, I kid you not, Nick, it took me 18 years to get that song the way that I wanted to get it. Like it started in one recording and then we sent it to Mike Poole, a mixing engineer friend of mine who's in Nashville, uh, right where you are. If I was to pick one influence, I'd say maybe Sly and the Family Stone. I want... because I love the Sly records because they have multi-voices. You never know who's going to show up when. And I, I, I'm really enamored with that approach. There's real unpredictability about it. So I would say that's an influence. It, it wasn't something direct. It's just in hindsight, when I look at it, and you ask, well, where did this come from? Someone had said, wow, this is like a Sly record, you know. But, you know, anyone who listens to it uh, or any song, you know, they, they have their own set of references that they might attach to it, you know. Do you still do that recording trick you do where you go to vinyl, then to digital, or not? Did you just, on this record? I did it, yeah. That, that is something I did on my first solo album, The Mandolin Man, which in 2021 will be the 30th anniversary of that album. So you'll probably see a, a digital issue of that to be released for the first time digitally. 30 years ago... I was very unimpressed with the way CDs sound. I thought they were very harsh, 
and they had a very cold sound to me, even on records that I liked by other artists. So what I did is that album was an all analog album, the Mandolin Man album. And I had the idea of doing something called AVD. So I had the analog tape, transferred it to vinyl, played the vinyl, put that in the digital domain. So the CD that was manufactured at the time is actually a, a record. You're actually hearing the record. So it's not some fake needle drop. That's the record that you're hearing. So, and it really warmed it up for me. Um, and Bernie Grumman liked it. You know, he, he was the one that helped me at the mastering engineer. I've done it on other albums since. So I did it with a Tom Freund record that I had produced, his first album, North American Weekend. I don't really feel the necessity to do that right now. I have another album uh, in the can that I finished a few years ago called The Slow Album. I did it to that album. I was in the studio and I thought it, I wanted it to be a little darker and murkier and vinyl kind of does that just by nature. What's fascinating about vinyl is that we're used to digital and in the world of CDs and the digital domain, it's a very consistent way of listening to music. Vinyl is the only format that's not consistent, meaning that the way a track sounds on song one is different than the last song on the record. It's sonically different because it's spinning at a different place because the needle is farther away from the in-group. I'm fascinated by all of that, and I like the imperfection of vinyl. I'm very attracted to it. And in fact, I, I, I've been on a, a search for years looking for a mono-pressing of bookends by Simon and Garfunkel, and I just found it. I'm so excited. It's really, really amazing. So the analog vinyl digital that I did, I didn't do it on this record. And I think a big part of it is that I wasn't really going for that. I might have done it had we not been in COVID. I would have been interested in doing that. The mastering engineer that I chose for the What's the Mood of the Country Now album uh, is, a guy, is a guy named Mike Bosey at Bernie Grumman Mastering. And Mike uh, is a Grammy Award-winning mastering engineer. He also did the uh, Kendrick Lamar album, Pimp to a Butterfly. And I liked the sound of that record. I thought it was adventurous. And I remember talking to Mike about it. I said, you kind of crossed modern hip-hop with early 70s Marvin Gaye soul. And he goes, that's exactly what we were going for. And I wanted that sensibility to creep in to the What's the Mood of the Country Now album on a sonic level. You have this history in Los Angeles. It's, you know, definitely you have an outsized reputation in Los Angeles. I mean, you were involved with Lone Justice. Um, you've got this Tom Petty connection to the guys in the band a bit. Tell us a little bit about kind of like the early career. A lot of people think that my life started with Lone Justice. But prior to that, I was in, let's just say, a new wave band in the late 70s called The Model. And we had played all the L.A. clubs, Club 88, Starwood, you name it. And we were playing three, four, five times a week. You know, people don't do that anymore. If you play twice a month, this is pre-COVID, you play twice a month in L.A., it's like, whoa, you just played a month ago. The scene doesn't have that kind of intensity in, in the last few years like it did in the late 70s. But we would play gigs with the motels before they were signed. I remember playing with them two nights in a row at Club 88, a little club. Souls, Translator, the, the Troubadour. And so the first producer I had worked with was a guy named Richard Baskin. And Richard was the musical director for the Robert Altman film, Nashville. And in a sense, Richard was like a, a mentor to me. 
you know, he turned me on to music. He turned me on the books. You know, I really liked a couple of the recordings that we did. And we worked with Chuck Plotkin and Toby Scott right before they worked with Springsteen on the River album. Then Chuck called me up and said, oh, you know, Bruce is coming to town and we're going to mix his album. So we got to take a break. I said, OK. When he said that, I'm thinking, how long can it take to mix a record? Two weeks, three weeks. Anyway, the river took six months to mix, you know. So within that time, the model broke up. I start playing acoustic in town. Now, mind you, at that time, 81, you know, around there, it's not a very fashionable, 82, it's not a very fashionable thing to be playing solo acoustic. In fact, when I would call Madame Wong's, another club we played, I think we were the first band to play there, they'd go, why do you want to play on your own? Why don't you bring a band? I said, I just want to play acoustic. And it was almost like you had to explain it to people. It, it was completely opposite, like the way things are right now. It's completely understood if someone says, oh, so-and-so is going to play with an acoustic guitar. Oh, okay, great. Let's go see them. It wasn't like that in the early 80s, at least for myself. I remember one gig, I opened up solo acoustic for the Bengals. You know, I would just play anytime, anywhere. The one advantage was is that sometimes the clubs would put me in opening up for someone, even in between slots. The, I had a residency at Cafe de Grand, which was a punk club, and I played weekly. And on one of the shows, Ryan Hedgecock was there, and he comes up to me, and he said, you were in the model, right? I said, yeah. I go, how do you know that? He goes, oh, I used to follow your shows all around town. I've seen you guys play a ton of times. I really love your songs. I go, it's really nice. And he, he had a flat top like George Jones. And we started talking about George Jones. And I was a huge George Jones fan at the time. And we started talking about George Jones on Music Corps. Pappy Daly was the original producer. And he said, you know, I also write songs. I said, oh, and, and sing. I said, it's great. I said, tell you what, I'm going to play next week. But instead of me playing, why don't you take my slot and I'll come see you play? And he was like, whoa, okay. So he goes, oh, by the way, I'm working with this girl singer. I said, whatever, bring her too. So next week shows up, there's five people in the club and Ryan walks in with Maria McKee and they do like three or four cover tunes and they're all killer. And they do this, you know, Graham and Emmy, you know, two part harmony, that's great. And afterwards I went up to Ryan, I said, this is a great concept, but I said, it's, it could go to the next level if you have original songs, if you're just going to stick with being a cover act, you know, I wouldn't really be involved. But I said, if you ever want to turn this into something original, I said, let me know. And so he goes, OK, uh, that was before Lone Justice had a name. And I ended up producing the early recordings, which have now been released with Omnivore recordings. Then I ended up joining the band, and then we ended up making one album uh, for Geffen with my involvement, and we toured with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. We toured with U2. That was the Iovine record? Was that Jimmy Iovine produced that record, right? Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Iovine produced the first album. I had written a third of the first album. The original recordings had never come out. And then a few years ago, I had ran into some of the folks at Omnivore Recordings. I said, you know, I've got these tapes of Lone Justice that have never come out. And they were like, what? <laughs> and uh, I held on to these tapes for, you know, 30 years. 
And so anyway, we released those. And then a couple of years after I left Lone Justice, I was introduced to an unsigned band from Santa Barbara, Total Wet Sprocket. And I went to see them, remind me of the early show with Ryan and Maria. It was like nine people in the audience, but they really had something, you know, it was really special, very dark and moody. And I was really into it. There was a band at the time in the 80s that I loved. I think they're from Italy, a two-person band called uh, Duridi Column. And not a lot of people know about them, but I had their albums. I loved them. In my mind, I wanted to make a, a Duridi Column-type, moody, guitar-centric album. I produced what became the Pale album. After Pale was presented to the labels, they had a few labels interested, which was nice. They ended up going with Columbia. Columbia put out the album. And then within years, I was started to work my album, The Mandolin Man. I finished that album. And then Toad was touring. They heard the Mandolin Man album. I ended up touring with them solo mandolin. You know, I went on tour with Sam Phillips and T-Bone Burnett when they were together. Uh, that was solo mandolin. So I did a few albums in a row with Restless Records. And then when they sold the label, unfortunately, you know, I just kept writing songs and recording and producing and playing with people. And aside from the mandolin, which you're a master of. <laughs> well. I love the story, though, that that came from your grandfather, right? Who immigrated from yeah. Poland and yes. had an interest in country music. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. He was a very unique guy. I mean, God broke the mold, I'm telling you. And as a kid, he was the first person I knew that loved country music, but he loved the real stuff. Buck Owens, Johnny Cash, Lynn Anderson, Liz Anderson. I mean, when he passed away, he was 95 and a half. He had 60 plus Johnny Cash records. He had hundreds and hundreds of these records. He came to see Lone Justice at the palace. And at the end of the night, uh, I went up to him and I said, what'd you think? I, I thought it would have been too much for him. And he said, you know, he looked around, it was very quiet. He goes, I, I don't like the balance. And he, and he held his fist in his hand. He looked up at me and he says, I like it loud and I like it fast. So he was a big fan when we did the two beat loud. That was his thing. He loved, you know, Maria. He loved the band. He just loved the whole thing. So he had a mandolin when I was a little boy and he let me play it. And then he got another one years later. And the same thing with stereo equipment. I still have one of his techniques turntables. He would give me stereo equipment, and then he'd get a, a replacement. So I had tape recorders since I was in junior high. The first tape recorder I had that had two tracks, I could overdub. So I, when I was writing songs in junior high, I had a Tanberg, which was a very high quality machine. He loved that stuff. And I could record one track, rewind the tape, record another track. I, I thought, oh boy, this is heaven for me. I would hand in assignments in junior high on tape. Instead of just like if I had to hand in a writing assignment or a poem, I go, oh, well, I put music to the poetry for the class assignment. They go, OK, I'll listen to it at home. That's awesome. How many instruments do you play? I mean, I would say string instruments is what I gravitate toward. You know, the mandolin family, the mandolin is parallel to the string instrument and the orchestra. So a mandolin's tune like a violin, a mandola, which I have is tuned like a viola. And a mandocello is tuned like a cello. The only mandolin that a string orchestra doesn't have is what I call is an octave mandolin, which is an octave lower. And it's also can be tuned like a bazooki, you know, so it kind of has uh, that kind of sound. The only mandolin I'm missing in terms of the main mandolins 
is a mando bass, which is literally a stand-up bass in the shape of a mandolin. The reason that uh, mandolins were prevalent with all these configurations is that in the early part of the 20th century, they used to have mandolin orchestras. So they could play orchestral pieces of music with all mandolins. No violins, no viola. So they could play the parts that were written for violin, viola, and, and cello. They could transfer it to the mandolin family. So you can find mandolin. And why was that? The, like, what, is, there, is there a, an accessibility of that versus buying a violin or a fine woodwind instrument? Was it? I just think it was whatever you gravitated toward, you know? So my grandfather liked the mandolin. He said as a kid, he was interested in violin, but he grew up in Lodge, Poland, with an Orthodox family, and they discouraged him from playing music. Like, that was a secular thing to do. And they said, no, just go to the temple and just pray all day. And he goes, no, no, that's not for me. So he rebelled, but he kept his love for music. He never played it outside of the home. Outside of the home, he worked the sweatshops in New York, and my grandparents worked the sweatshops in Los Angeles. Very, very hardworking people. I, I'm really lucky. I, I don't know what I would have done had I had he not been in my life. Seriously. I don't know what would have happened. What's his name? Just for the record. Yeah. Harry <laughs> Teitelbaum. Nice. Well, let me ask you something. You've been um, yeah. at this in a lot of different capacities. Producer, songwriter, yeah. um, obviously your own art, artist careers. Yeah. Um, like, what do you attribute, like, like maintaining your creativity over like four decades to? I think it's about training the mind to be completely accessible to you at any particular time. A lot of my work is done in dreams. So I'll dream songs. And this happens to me in books. It's sometimes it's hard for me to finish a book because all of a sudden I'll start to feel the rhythm of the words and I have to put the book down. That inspired a new song that I just finished. My philosophy of it, when it leaves me, I'll leave it. And it hasn't left me. I mean, I'm really lucky. I'm very blessed that I've got a stack of songs that I haven't recorded yet in, in COVID. I mean, I have albums worth of material. I love collaboration. I've co-written a couple of songs with a couple of different songwriters over COVID. I've worked with studios from afar here in Los Angeles, in, in Nashville. And on a day-to-day -day level, it's just about keeping creative and just staying in a creative mindset and literally following dreams. That if the dream happens, I try to wake up and be in tune with that. So every day is a little bit different. It's really unpredictable. So random's a part of it too. Discipline's one part of it in some ways, and random's the other part of it in some ways. Yeah, but the randomness, if you don't have discipline, then you're not ready for the random. Because it's it might seem all random. So a couple of years ago, I was in the studio producing uh, the debut album for Stephen Stills and Judy Collins. I was in the studio. She's on the other side of the glass, and they cut. Um, who knows where the time go? The Sandy Denny classic. I'm a huge Sandy Denny fan. In fact, I'd seen Sandy Denny with Fairport Convention as a kid at the Troubadour. If you're not into Fairport Convention, I highly recommend it. In fact, Sandy Denny sang on Led Zeppelin IV on Battle of Evermore, if you want a, a pop rock and roll introduction to it. So Judy Collins is recording Who Knows Where the Time Goes. This is in the last couple of years. And it's incredible. I felt like it was 1972 Electra Records. The vocal was like spot on. It was as if a time capsule from the early 70s of when she did her original version. And she comes in. I said, I think we got it. And she said, oh, well... I got lucky. 
I said, you got lucky. She said, yeah, I've sung that song probably 100,000 times over the last 45 years. I said, so let me ask you something. Your definition of luck is that you spend 40 years with a song, you sing it 100,000 times, and then you get lucky? No, that's something else. You were ready for that moment to get it in one take because that's what's called being a master. You're ready for that moment. And it's all about being ready for the moment. How dedicated are you? How willing are you to put yourself day to day, day after day, month after month, year after year, till finally you get to a point where it's like, okay, I got to trust that I know what I'm doing. And I still believe in it. And the music is still there. The songs still keep coming. And I love all aspects of making records. I love dealing with the graphic designer. I love dealing with photographers. You know, I love all of it. You know, it's all coming from the same pool, you know. A lot of my favorite uh, artists were, whether it's recording artists or not, you know, if you look at their career in the long term, you know, that they were interested not just in the exact thing that they were doing. Like Sinatra was an amazing singer, conceptualized the first concept album in the wee small hours in the morning in the mid 50s. No one had done that before. So a lot of people uh, over the decades, they, they have a multitude of talents and one kind of weaves into the other. They're not separated. Yeah, well, let me ask you um, maybe one of our last questions here. Since this, is called the, since this is called the radical, was there a radical moment like in your career that went, you know, in a good direction that allowed you to kind of break through? Or was there one that went the wrong way, but that's something that led to greatness? I can answer it both ways, but it kind of brings us really into the present. As I mentioned earlier, when COVID hit, I had the concept for regional records in 1989. Virgin Records wanted to sign Toad the Wet Sprocket, but Toad chose to go with Columbia. The presidents, the two presidents, they had a co-presidency at Virgin at the time, called me up and said, how come that you can produce a Toad record for under $20,000, and it sounds better than our records that cost $250,000. We want to meet with you. Come on in. So I met with them. They wanted to give me my own label to develop up-and-coming artists around the country. We had a lot of meetings that followed up, and I said, what do you want to call the label? And there was just a flash in my head. I said, regional records. Oh, they go, that's great. We love it. Okay. I think it was 90, if I'm not mistaken, around there. I got a call from... One of the presidents, they said, look, we just want to be honest with you that we're leaving the company. And so if you're leaving, I don't want to continue because I, I love you guys and you're the reason that I want to go with Virgin. I don't know who the next president's going to be. And so cut to COVID March 2020. And so when I cut the distribution deal, um, I formed regional records. So to me, it's a culmination of all the work that I've been doing over all these years and putting my talents into that. And so I feel very um, lucky about that because I'm not sure I would have stopped the wheels, so to speak, to start the label. And when I started Regional Records 2020, officially, all of a sudden it was like, okay, I really felt like my entire life kind of led to this moment. And that's why the first release was my solo on What's the Mood of the Country Now? It was really, you know, really a statement of, 
I'm going to put myself on the line and let's see what happens. That to me is one of the ways I can answer that question. Well, Marvin has a new record out. What's the mood of the country now? The single is out, I think, the week before this, and that's Love Letter to Democracy. It's a standalone single, and the album's out as well. Available on your favorite digital platform. Yeah. It's a new world out there. They don't all have to be coupled together anymore. So Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Well, Marvin, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this with me. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. I'm very uh, impressed with your output this year. It's very impressive in 2020 and last year, 2020. Well, thank you. Right on, right on. I can't wait to see you in person. All right. Sounds good to me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. TheRadicalPod.com. You will find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week.